When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at first, first listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Double Elvis. What were you doing 30 days ago? What did you eat? What did you listen to? Did you sing in the shower? Did you call your mom? Did you laugh? Did you cry? Do you even remember what day it was 30 days ago? Of course not, because 30 days is a long time, which is why CarMax gives you 30 long days to make sure you love your car. And if you don't love it, you can return it and get your money back. The CarMax 30-day money-back guarantee. It's car buying reimagined. CarMax. 30-day, 1,500-mile limit. See CarMax.com for details. Technically, CarMax is a virtual reality company. You can shop the lot virtually, online, or you can see the cars in reality, on the lot. Or you could have the best of both worlds. We give you the freedom to shop or buy however you need. Like we said, virtual reality. Don't come for us, tech people. It's car buying reimagined. CarMax. Spring it on with 40 to 70% off almost everything at Gap Factory and GapFactory.com. Matching styles for the family are on sale, too. Shop it all through April 12th. Blood on the Tracks is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Phil Spector was a musical genius, one of the most successful record producers of all time. He is now sitting behind bars serving a 19-years-to-life sentence for murder. This is his story, told by his so-called friends. (laughs) 
This is Special Agent Paul Ramon with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, working case number 004-10-7419. Case subject is Spectre Philip Harvey. This information pertains to the period ending December 15, 1974. Interview subject is Spectre Veronica Yvette. Interview number 7-05-36-63. Recall number 1, February 14, 2005. Time went on, they started writing about him being a genius. He'd say, yeah, I am a genius. And then they'd say he's the mad genius, so he became the mad genius. Anything they wrote about him became, he's a recluse, so he became a recluse. I think if Phil hadn't read anything about himself, he'd still be the same, but that's the story, that he became a replicate of everything he read about himself. I wouldn't say he's mad, I think a lot of times he's pretending to be, because I've seen him straight, and I've seen him act with that way of his. A lot of it may be mad, but a lot of it is certainly intentional. To let people wonder, what is this guy all about? I think he's always wanted attention. He's always wanted to be an artist on his own. He just didn't have the talent or, or the voice. I think he's afraid to go back in the studio, afraid that it won't be a hit, and that people would start saying he's not such a genius. He wants to keep that title. And you can't keep that title without leaving a little blood on the tracks. Chapter 2 Phil Spector and Ronnie Spector Oh, honey, I knew them all. The Rolling Stones opened for us. Keith Richards put his eyes on me, honey. He wished his hands were on me, too. (laughs) When the Beatles came to America for the first time, Ringo called me from their hotel room. They were so green. Can you picture it? Ringo Starr calling Veronica Bennett, a girl from Spanish Harlem, calling Ronnie for a hot tip. From the first time me and the girls put our hair up in beehives... From the first time we walked down West 45th with thick eyeliner dressed to the nines, we floated on air. We glided real smooth, you see? From the first time, honey, it was go time. It was... We stood in line at the Peppermint Lounge, walked that walk, that walk got us the nod. The bouncer thought we were the entertainment. We took the expressway to the front of that line, From that first time, doors opened. Behind one door, Keith Richards. Behind another door, John Lennon. Behind door number three, a hit record like you wouldn't believe. You couldn't walk half a block in New York City in the summer of 1963 and not hear Be My Baby coming out of some tenement window or a car stereo. So of course I thought that a life with Phil would lead to more of the same. 
We'd be cutting to the front of every line, calling up the stars on the phone, rubbing elbows, all that, baby. But life with Phil closed more doors than it opened. Honey, the only door that Phil opened for me was the closet door, and he shoved me in there. I am serious, honey. The closets at the house on La Colina were big, but they weren't that big. He kept me in that house like a prisoner. I have said it before, and I'll say it again. I was his prisoner. If I wanted to leave, if I wanted to go anywhere, for a walk, for a drive, go shopping, go see my friends, I had to ask George Brand to let me out of my own damn house. You see, I was treated like a child. I was a prisoner. He's reckless. George lived in the basement. George and his gun permit. Phil hired him as his latest bodyguard. This was after Big Red, after Emil Farkas. Bodyguard, though? (laughs) George was just another way of Phil justifying all the shit he did. Made him feel like a big man. Phil could tell you to fuck right off, and if you didn't like it, George would appear from behind Phil's shoulders to make sure there were no problems. Back to this closet, though. He locked me in the damn closet. Upstairs, honey. (laughs) He liked to shoo me away to the bedroom when company came over, make myself scarce, like I was some kept prize, except he never wanted to show anyone his prize. He wanted the prize so he could say he had the prize, that he and no one else had it. He had me. And there I was that night, locked in the closet upstairs. He forced me inside, closed the door, locked it with a padlock or some shit. He had even put a lock on our liquor cabinet around this time. He said I had been drinking too much, but honey, I took a screwdriver to that lock and busted it wide open. Wasn't my first rodeo. He put a bigger lock on it and I found a bigger screwdriver. There wasn't much I could do from inside that closet. I screamed, oh, I did. I yelled, I banged my fist against the doors. This wasn't no live from the peppermint lounge, honey. I wasn't floating my way out from between that rock and a hard place with a beehive and a smile. Phil went downstairs to shoot pool with Don Krishner. They probably reminisced about the past which Phil was obsessed with, his past hits, his past success, his past fame, all of which eluded him now in, when was this, uh, 1969, probably? I mean, he's got the singer of one of the biggest hits of the 60s stuck in a closet on the second floor of his 21-room mansion in Beverly Hills. Is it any wonder that fame eluded him? Fame is a fickle bitch, honey. Manson had him paranoid and anxious, wired. Why do you think George was sleeping in the basement with loaded weapons? We came home from a trip to Vegas that August, right after it happened. We have a weird homicide. Phil went into crisis mode. Hollywood went into crisis mode. He installed a chain link fence, barbed wire. He had some warning signs put around the place. You know, no trespassing, that kind of thing. And then he got a couple dogs, attack dogs. I hated those dogs. 
At this point, the point when I'm stuck in this huge closet, I had already tried to start the divorce process once. We were not living the life I had envisioned. And now I wondered why I had dropped it. He had me caged like an animal. Don heard my screaming and my banging. He came running from downstairs. Pool could wait. Whatever story they were batting around could wait. He could tell something was wrong, that someone was in need of his help. Phil, Phil wouldn't help nobody unless it helped him. Don threw the closet door open and pulled me out by my arm. He led me all the way down the stairs and, and he kept going. We walked fast, right past Phil. What is this past the antique French furniture, past the 19th century oil paintings, past the photos of me that he had plastered all over the walls next to his Picasso. The Matador, past the Steinway Grand Piano. Don kept walking until we were out of that house and then he asked me where I wanted to go. He would take me anywhere but there. And I let him. I don't remember where we wound up going. But I do remember that it wasn't long before I was back at that mansion. And back with Phil. It started real sweet, real innocent. It started with guitars tuning up and drum sets pounding out a determined rhythm. It started with the promise of two and a half minute songs, short, but life changing. It started down an alley off Santa Monica Boulevard near Vine, Gold Star Recording Studios. You'll be amazed to know just how much can be done with sound. In 1963, I was 20, Phil was 23. I didn't even know he was married. He would bring me by his apartment and I'd ask him about all the women's clothes that were on his floor on the edge of the bed and he told me they belonged to his sister. I wouldn't say he's mad. I think a lot of times he's pretending to me. It was Darlene who told me that he was married. He was with a girl named Annette. They were newlyweds, actually. But at Gold Star, at that tiny hole-in-the-wall studio that he loved, for whatever reason, it was all me. He definitely favored me over Estelle or Nedra. He focused on me, doted on me, and I ain't gonna lie, honey, I like the attention. Pretty soon he had me come sit with him in the control room, a smaller room within a small room, the inner circle inside a small circle. I felt bad leaving Estelle and Nedra behind, but what can I say? I, I thought I could step on that pedestal he was offering without it changing me. What was that Tina song, uh, A Fool in Love? He's got me smiling when I should be ashamed. Got me laughing when my heart is in pain. Phil started throwing his weight around. He would put himself between me and other men. Didn't want anyone else making eye contact with me. Didn't want anyone talking to me. He was marking his territory, staking his claim. I've seen him in that way of this. And though it may have seemed so at first, it wasn't a fairy tale. First off, he was married. 
newly married, you know the type. And second, he was unreasonable for a guy who was stepping out on his brand new wife, he could be awfully entitled. Before we were even official, he was pulling power moves. Whenever I left Gold Star without telling Phil, even if I just walked out the door and into the alley, Phil went from my lovable genius to genius. He got possessive, controlling, maniacal. I think he's always wanted attention. Even if it was just to grab burgers down the street with Sonny Bono. Sonny was a jack of all trades for Phil. Get that thing, Sonny. Tell that person this thing, Sonny. Sonny, bang this tambourine. Drive that car. Sonny, go get those burgers. Phil's cravings were routine, expected. A dog from Pink's, a burger from Stan's drive-in. He'd send Sonny to grab burgers and bring them back to Gold Star. So one day, Sonny runs out for burgers. Not because Phil asked him to, but because he wants a burger. L.A. burgers ain't nothing like them. (laughs) They come wrapped in these paper sleeves. Self-contained bliss with a thick tomato slice in the middle. Sonny tells me he's going to Stan's. I grab Nedra to run out with him. Keep him company, get some fresh air. That Gold Star air, that got stale, honey. Got stale real quick. Phil must have flown off the handle when he realized I had left. A lot of it may be bad, but a lot of it is certainly intentional. When we got back to Gold Star with the burgers, it looked like a bomb had gone off. Shit was knocked around, a chair upside down, mic stands on the ground, papers scattered everywhere, tape unspooled from the reels. Phil was out of breath, his face was red, his hair, the, the rug he had started wearing to add some depth to his hair he was losing was mussed up. He looked three seconds away from exploding. He called Sonny, Sonny Bozo after that. Sonny's girl, Cher, took me dancing one night at the Purple Onion on the Strip, a jazz joint that had dance contest nights. We went on one of those dance nights, cut loose, do the twist and all that, and here comes Phil. A bat out of hell, straight in through the front door, across the dance floor, he pulled my ass out of there so fast made the twist seem like a slow waltz. We kept our relationship secret for many years, even though it was obvious to those who were around us the most. I was a little embarrassed. Not just that he was still married, but for the way he treated me. But I held out. Held out for the promise that the better days would outweigh the bad ones. That he would be less unreasonable, less volatile once he split from Annette. We would hold court with the princes and queens of pop music and and really be somebody. He got a Mexican divorce in the mid-60s around the time he moved to L.A. for good. He hated L.A. The sun, the drugs, the people who had turned their noses up at him when he was a kid kicking around the Fairfax district. He was the least likely L.A. person to be in L.A., but he felt he could bend the L.A. musicians to his will in a way that New Yorkers never would. He had to be here. We got married in April 1968. They shot Dr. King a few days before the wedding. Good evening. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence and the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. I thought my wedding was over. We were all in shock over the news, but Phil, 
Phil went somewhere dark, somewhere alone. Anything they wrote about him became... He's a recluse, so he became a recluse. He locked himself in the bedroom for days, brought in a reel-to-reel with him, spools of Dr. King's speeches, and he just listened to Dr. King talk for days on end. And I've seen the promised land. He told me that I just married him for his money, for his fame. And you know what, baby? Moments like those when he piled on the anger and the insults. Moments like those, sure, maybe I did it for the money and the fame and the attention. I'd say I didn't like what he had become, but it's fairly obvious that he had always been that way. I wasn't going back down. My Spanish Harlem roots would snap back if they got bent. I yelled back at him, told him he was washed up, that he hadn't made a good record in years. Then he came after me. I spent my wedding night locked in the bathroom at the mansion on La Colina with my mother. Bill banged on the door, then he made some heartfelt plea, then he'd bang on the door again. I didn't let him in all night. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Technically, CarMax is a virtual reality company. You can shop the lot virtually online, or you can see the cars in reality on the lot. Or you could have the best of both worlds. We give you the freedom to shop or buy however you need. Like we said, virtual reality. Don't come for us, tech people. It's car buying reimagined. CarMax. What were you doing 30 days ago? What did you eat? What did you listen to? Did you sing in the shower? Did you call your mom? Did you laugh? Did you cry? Do you even remember what day it was 30 days ago? Of course not, because 30 days is a long time, which is why CarMax gives you 30 long days to make sure you love your car. And if you don't love it, you can return it and get your money back. The CarMax 30-Day Money-Back Guarantee. It's car buying reimagined. CarMax. 30-day, 1,500-mile limit. See CarMax.com for details. Greetings, Earthlings. I'm Emily Stefan. And I'm Gemini Hernandez. We're your resident weirdos, artists of all trades, and multicultural couple. And we have a classified secret to share with you. We're We're aliens. Okay, just kidding. We're human, unfortunately. But sometimes when we look around, we really do feel like we came from a different time or galaxy. So we created a space for all of us who wonder if we're in the right place. In the form of a podcast called In Our Own World. And this is your official invitation to join us on our new planet. I mean podcast. Strap in for the ride. Warning, it might get bumpy. We'll voyage through conversations about everything under the stars and maybe even pick up a few passengers along the way. Listen to In Our Own World starting April 13th as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Look, honey, I'll be the first to admit it. I was drinking too much. I was drinking so much that I crashed the Camaro. This was the the white Camaro, the one Phil got me for my 25th birthday. 
my initials in silver on the glove box. I'll remember the day I got it. August 10th, 1968. A white ribbon wrapped around it. At first sight, I was in love. But there was a caveat with that gift. There was always a caveat with Phil. He bought an inflatable man doll that I had to leave in the passenger seat anytime I drove around town on my own. His paranoia and his need to control me were reaching a fever pitch in, in tandem. God forbid someone saw me driving around L.A. on my own. What were they going to do? Flag me down? Hop in the car with me? Make violent love to me right there on the leather? So I had too many drinks one day. The more I thought about Phil, the more irritated I became. He wasn't making new music with me. He was barely making any music at all. I think he's afraid to go back in the studio. I hadn't sung on a record in years. I had no social life. Phil made sure of that. I could barely think for myself at home without asking Phil for permission first. So, I had another drink. And another. Then I got behind the wheel of the Camaro, stuck an unlit cigarette in the mouth of the blow-up doll, and put it in drive. New safety features are The last thing I remember was swerving to avoid an oncoming tree, and then I was out. The Camaro was hanging off the side of a cliff. How I didn't fall off the side of the cliff to plummet to my death is anyone's guess. Maybe God was looking out for me that day, or maybe he wasn't. He he did send me right back into the arms of Phil Spector, after all. My next birthday, my 26th birthday, we were in Vegas to see Elvis Presley. Immediately after the show, Phil couldn't wait to ditch me for the king. (laughs) On my birthday, honey. He barely said one word to me and pushed his way through the crowd to get up close and personal with Elvis. I think he's always wanted attention. I went back to the hotel and got hammered. Happy birthday to me. So listen. I adopted Dante to fill a hole. I thought being a mother would give me something to focus on and not go over the edge, like, like I had driven over the edge in the Camaro. But Phil wanted people to think I had actually given birth. See, he told me to stuff a pillow under my shirt when we had company. And then he doubled down on children. He tripled down. He adopted the twins, Gary and Lewis, without even telling me. He didn't even tell me. We drove home one day and there they were, blonde hair flowing in the wind as they ran around the mansion. Merry Christmas. That's what he said to me. The kids didn't stop me from thinking about performing again. Seeing Elvis gave me the bug and and I couldn't shake it. I deserved to be on the same stage as Elvis. I told Phil we needed to do something. It was time, it was beyond time. Phil had just worked with George Harrison on All Things Must Pass, and George told him, I've got this great song for Ronnie. I think, oh, boy, a Beatle has a song for me. The next thing I know, I'm signed up to Apple Records, and Phil is telling everybody about my comeback album, and we fly out to London, to Abbey Road Studios, to cut a record with a Beatle. So, George gives me this song, Try Some, Buy Some, and I think, what is this Shit. I had no idea what that song was about, and it was out of my range, too. It was too high. I just couldn't believe that this was a song to bring my career back from the dead. Afraid that it won't be a hit. 
It was mid-tempo, plotting, and Phil, as usual, drenched it with an orchestra. People will start saying he's not such a genius. I just didn't get it, honey. Maybe I was just getting lost with the times. Well, the song was a flop. Phil was depressed. Hell, I was depressed. The comeback album never happened. I never came back. So I continued to hit the bottle. Whatever bottle I could find. Drinking gave me an escape when I had nowhere to escape to. I was sent to doctors, to institutions. Eventually, Phil had me join AA, so I played that game. Didn't play it very well. It was a game I didn't feel like playing. When I came back from AA, the mansion was locked. Every door. There wasn't a soul inside. Phil had kept me in, and now he was keeping me out. I I couldn't keep up. My mother was inside and heard my screams to open the goddamn door. She let me in the side entrance that the housekeeper and cook used. And then Phil was there in my face. He was drunk. He had sent me to psychiatrists and to sanitariums and to AA for being drunk. And now he was drunk. I mean, hello, pot, meat, kettle. He was yelling like he always did. Told me I was a drunk. Told me I must be having an affair. Told me to lawyer up. He put his hands on me, in my face, tackled me to the ground, told me he would have me killed if I left the house, that he had already bought a coffin for my funeral. It was solid gold. The next morning, I made my escape. I walked out the front door, the same door he had locked on me so I couldn't get back in, the same door I hadn't been able to walk through on my own for years. Later, he tracked me down and called me on the phone, told me he threw out all my shit. That's what he said. He said it was all stuffed into a garbage can on La Cienega. He wouldn't tell me the cross street. That was it, honey. That was the last time I spoke to Phyllis, his wife. It took a few more years before we were legally divorced, but from that moment on, I was done. If I ever saw him again after that moment, I've already forgotten. February 2nd, 1975, New York City. Ronnie Spector cashed another alimony check. She flipped it over to endorse it and saw the same stamped message that she had come to expect in faded black ink. It read, Fuck you. Phil was still demeaning her through his court-ordered monthly payments, still jockeying for the upper hand, the last word still imagining he could lord over her from atop high-heeled shoes that ignored his Napoleonic frame. The stamp that he put on the back of every check gaslighted Ronnie in the same way. It said that she had been the problem, not him. How could a genius be the source of the problem, after all? Before the checks with the fuck you stamps, there were even more passive-aggressive payouts. The second alimony payment he ever made consisted entirely of nickels, all $1,250. It was delivered by armed guards with shotguns. Phil had it all. The mansion, the children, the Camaro, the career. 
Ronnie got a monthly payment from her ex-husband, but she didn't have much more than that. She had no label, she had no producer. She didn't even hear her songs coming out of car stereos on the streets of Spanish Harlem anymore. When Ronnie thought of the things that gave her comfort and joy, she noted that they had all been taken away from her. Her children, her freedom, her career, her dignity, her sanity. When she thought of the things that had seemed so easy, seemed second nature, things like waltzing to the front of the line at the Peppermint Lounge, or hearing the opening thundercrack on a playback of Walking in the Rain with Phil in the control room, those things seemed like a lifetime away. It had all been so easy, and then it got unbelievably hard. She wanted it to be easy again, but if she couldn't go back in time, the least she could do was forget about the present. She poured herself a glass of cognac in bed and reclined. When she woke up, her pillow was wet, and so was her signature beehive hairdo. The bottle of cognac had fallen over when she fell asleep. Her bed was soaked. Frustrated that she was now out of cognac and in a wet bed, she lit a cigarette. She took a long, slow drag, started to think about how she could make it easy again, and then she drifted off. When she woke up for the second time, there was smoke coming from her head, flames on the pillow. She reached up to touch her beehive, and it was gone. Everything was gone. 1975 was a long way from 1964. In 1964, when Ronnie, Estelle, and Nadra stepped off a plane in London to talk of the town on two continents, their entire lives and careers ahead of them, the girl group to begin and end all girl groups, the in-sound from Spanish Harlem town. Ronnie was hounded by everyone, wanted by everyone, desired by everyone. There wasn't one man who crossed her path who didn't want to be her baby. Not least of all was Keith Richards who despite Phil Spector's warning to the Stones manager, Andrew Log Oldham, developed a lump in the throat, pain in the heart crush on Ronnie that wasn't easily shaken. Ronnie shook Keith to the core, shook him right out of his bad boy pose and into one of a love-struck puppy. Oldham would tell him to knock it off and Phil Spector would tell him to watch himself. But Keith didn't easily knock off. Keith wasn't easily watched. Keith and Ronnie and Phil would be twisted up together in 1964 and beyond, and Keith would have his own secrets to keep and stories to tell. Secrets and stories from a time back before things soured with Ronnie and Phil. Back before Phil burrowed deeper into a life of solitude, paranoia, and murder, all to keep that title, that genius title. Because you can't keep that title without leaving a little blood on the tracks. This episode of Blood on the Tracks is brought to you by 27 Club, a podcast that I host on musicians who died at the age of 27. Season 2 featuring Jim Morrison is now available, as is Season 1 with 12 episodes featuring Jimi Hendrix. Subscribe to the 27 Club on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, this episode was also brought to you by Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast also hosted by yours truly. Episodes on the Rolling Stones, Jerry Lee Lewis, Cardi B, The Grateful Dead, Jay-Z, Prince, and many, many more are all waiting for you right now. Just search Disgraceland on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcast. All right, this episode of Blood on the Tracks was written by Zeth Lundy and scored and mixed by Matt Bowden. Hosted by me, Jake Brennan. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker and Henry Lunetta. This episode featured Lindsay Cox as Ronnie Spector. 
Blood on the Tracks is produced by myself for Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Sources for this episode are available at doubleelvis.com on the Blood on the Tracks series page. If you like what you hear, please be sure to subscribe to Blood on the Tracks on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio app, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to win a free Blood on the Tracks poster designed by Nate Gonzalez, then leave a review for Blood on the Tracks on Apple Podcasts. You can hashtag Blood on the Tracks on social media, leave your review there, and we'll pick two winners each week and announce them on the Double Elvis Instagram page. That's at Double Elvis. Go ahead and give that a follow. All right, as always, you can find me blabbing about other crazy rock stars on Disgraceland and 27 Club, and you can talk to me per usual on Instagram and Twitter at DisgracelandPod. Rock away. History is littered with tragic stories from which we could all learn lessons. The spectacular Broadway show that flopped, the autopilot that helped crash a plane, the heatwave that killed some city residents, but not their neighbours. I'm Tim Harford, host of Cautionary Tales, the podcast that looks for the valuable lessons in the greatest mistakes, disasters and fiascos of the past. Listen to Cautionary Tales on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Elliot Kalin, comedian, author, history buff, and host of the Who Was podcast, a history quiz show based on the best-selling Penguin book series, where kid contestants go toe-to-toe for a chance to win fantastic prizes. From Alexander the Great to Aretha Franklin, we ask only important history questions like, would Genghis Khan shop at Hot Topic? And did Frida Kahlo like soup? Buckle up your brain. Listen to the Who Was podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sir, we got your test results back and... Give it to me straight, Doc. You have to listen to the podcast Ridiculous News, hosted by comedians Bill Worley and Mark Kendall. I know them. They talk about the news, but not like in a depressing way. You know what I mean? Like they did an episode about April Fool's. Great. Well, you need to listen to it. Where can I listen? Well, get it wherever you find podcasts. Oh, like in a cereal box. Well, no, that's not where you find a podcast. Instead, listen to Ridiculous News on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, you know, wherever you find podcasts. Like in the middle of a tree. Absolutely not. You sure? Yes. Yes.